Thanks, Mike, and good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all, and um, especially let me give a, a special shout-out if you're watching and you're isolated somewhere at the moment. Um, I hope that uh, you have a, a, a good time uh, listening in and singing at home and everything that you can do, even though you're in your own lounge room, and uh, as well those who are watching from on holidays. Love to be you right now. <laughs> but uh, let, let's... um. We've come up to a good series, a series that's really going to hopefully stretch our minds and, and get us thinking, um, get our heads above uh, our own ground level, I guess you could say. How often have you heard this expression, I'd like to think of God as... Now, how often is, have you been in a conversation and someone begins talking about God that way? I like to think of God this way. You see, we live in a consumer society where we like to buy what we want to buy from wherever we want to buy it, and it's easy to treat and approach God that way too. God becomes controllable and limited and tame, defined in a way that's going to suit our mood or to fit into our culture and what it prefers to see. A God who, like a handbag in a sense, needs to fit into our sense of spiritual fashion. We can design God in our own image. And so you might have come up with people who might sort of believe in an enviro God, right? Well, I'd like to think that God's main passion, just like mine, is keeping the world green. Or maybe universo God. I'd like to think that God just wants everyone to get along and actually couldn't care less whether you worship the God of the Bible or some deity that you come up with. I know that I don't care what kind of God you believe in. I don't believe God would either. Or Beatles God. All you need is love. So as long as you can define whatever it is that you're doing as love, then I'm pretty sure God will be okay with that because I am. Or standard Aussie God, perhaps. You know, that's okay, people. Look, I'll just get out of your way. I won't bother you. Just do what you want to do and then call me up, you know, when you get to the afterlife, I'll put a beer on ice for you and you can just come on in. Because, you know, that's the kind of God that I'd like to believe in. Of course, these gods tend to end up being pretty small and pretty tame. And so in the end, pretty much safe for pretty much everybody. Now, safe handbag God is comfortable. But, What if God's not really like that? What if the God who is really out there doesn't fit neatly into our lives like some kind of spiritual accessory? Because you see, there's no point worshipping God as he isn't. So this January, what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of the handbag gods. The small, limited gods of caricature that we carry around to suit ourselves. And we're going to step back and we're going to have a look at the vastness of the true, living and infinite God as he has revealed himself to be. And why are we going to do that? We're going to do it so that we can worship God rightly and worship God as he really is in all of his mind-blowing glory. Now, obviously, we can't cover everything that there is to say about God in a short series. But what we're going to particularly focus on is enlarging our vision, lest we have a dangerously domesticated view of the most glorious and powerful being in existence. The Bible repeatedly reminds us, you see, that the fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of wisdom. That's what sets you on the road to being wise and understanding life properly, is to have a proper reverence for God. The real God is a God to tremble before in reverence, even as we rejoice and bask in his love. They're not mutually exclusive. And that's what we're going to have a look at. And the Bible shows us in particular, there's three things that any person who wants to relate with God properly needs to come to terms with about him. We need to come to terms with his majesty and revere that. We need to revere his holiness and we need to revere his justice. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first of those three and that is God's awesome majesty. Now, you know, it sounds strange, but we constantly need reminding that God is God and we're not. Now, you might have known the guy from Greek mythology, the guy called Narcissus. Have you heard of him? Um, You see, he was this pretty boy and he fell in love with his own reflection in a pool. And in fact, he loved it so much that he kept staring at himself and he couldn't stop. Eventually, because he couldn't look away from his own reflection and just marvelled in his own beauty, he stayed there until he died. That's the story of Narcissus. Now, our world is becoming increasingly like Narcissus. On, On multiple social media platforms, we put photos of ourselves everywhere, we broadcast our every thought to the world. And we can easily act as if the world revolves around us and that we're the most magnificent beings in it. And so every now and then it's vital that we look up from the pool and we see what is above and greater than us. Have you ever really thought about what it means to speak of a being like God? Well, one of the clear messages of the Bible is that God is our creator. But when you read those words, and God created the heavens and the earth, do you realise the implications of that phrase? Now we're going to do a little bit of a a perspective exercise. Um, I just love playing around with facts and figures and stuff you'd read in the Guinness Book Record, so we're going to go with this. Right, I want you to first of all consider how big the earth is, right? It's 40,000 kilometres around. So there's one billion people live in India and we can't see any of them from orbit. There's one billion people underneath that circle. So much for the human ego. Anyway, that's how big the Earth is. More than six billion of us live on this planet that revolves around the sun. A sun that's nearly 4.5 billion kilometres around it is equator. And this is how big the Earth is in comparison to the sun. That massive ball of flame has got a core temperature of 15.7 million degrees and it's at the centre of our solar system. Well, if our sun was a normal-sized marble and the solar system was a dinner plate, how big do you think the dinner plate would be compared to the marble? Well, the dinner plate would stretch from Sydney to Canberra. That's big, isn't it? with a little marble in the middle of it that is that massive sun. And this unbelievably huge solar system is located in the Milky Way galaxy. Compared to our galaxy, the solar system would be the equivalent of a 10-cent piece sitting on the railing 
at Homebush Stadium. It's huge. And what about our universe? Well, if the Milky Way galaxy was the 10 cent piece, then the universe would be a marble three kilometres wide and high. And there's the Sydney skyline for comparison. Imagine a 10 cent piece sitting on the pavement in that tiny picture in the bottom corner. That's our galaxy compared to the universe. And if this is the universe, then this is God. Now, I kind of wanted to animate that so that the marble went ping, but I couldn't. So I wanted to have a bit of fun with the pictures. But, but hopefully what's done is it started just to stretch our minds about even the very world that we live in, the very universe we live in, and therefore consider what it means to talk about a God that made it. Think the God that calls you to follow him, called into being all of that with the sheer power of his will. But God didn't just make the universe. Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us that he sustains it all by his powerful word. By his word, he sustains all of that and everything in it. So that means that the same God that's moving around galaxies is active in the most minuscule of events as well. So he governs the movement of every single electron around every single one of the 8 million, billion, trillion atoms that make up my body alone. Not one of those electrons moves without the authority of God behind it. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. The awesomely majestic God rules the entire universe, from the smallest subatomic particle to the supermassive black holes that dwell in the hearts of galaxies. He rules. I mean, it's the magnitude of God's sheer power starting to rest on you. You know, I love to go down when there's a huge swell. You know, go down to Bondi or Coogee or something like that when there's like some rockingly big seven or eight metre swell and you just watch it crashing over the pools and the rocks. And you just stand in awe if you've ever done that and you almost tremble at the power on display. You watch a tornado on the telly pictures of a volcano exploding on YouTube and you sit back and you go, whoa, right? There's this, there's this thrill almost of, of, of fear that goes through you as the, the, the sheer power on display makes you shiver. We can't even begin to imagine the awesome power of God. If that makes you shiver, think about the power in his word. And that's what Isaiah 40 came out with. I love that rhetorical question from verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Isaiah is trying to ram this home to Israel and say, think, has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. 
He brings princes to naught, reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. And no sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes, look to the heavens, who created all these. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls each of them by name, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. See what I mean? The sheer power and majesty of God is beyond comprehension. But God's rule is not just about his capacity. It's not just about his raw power, the stuff he can do, right? It's about his wisdom. His majesty is about his righteousness. His majesty is about his authority over people. The awesome, majestic, creator God is the one who made humanity, think about this, in his image. You're made in his image. And so, of course... He is vitally interested in our lives and the lives and activity of those that he's given the amazing honour of being the pinnacle of his creation. Of course he cares about what you do. God isn't watching us occasionally. He's not watching us disinterestedly from a distance. He is very, very attentive and active in his rule and in his rule over us. So he's the king over all kings. He's the authority over all authorities on earth. So Psalm 47 reminds us that God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He's greatly exalted. And this is the thing about God, right? His his authority isn't derived from somebody else. You know, like the Governor-General. His rule isn't the rule of an elected um, official who's subject to his people, right? Like our politicians are. And there's no secret power behind his throne. There's no person that he needs to deal with or answer to or lobby. He is true majesty. Right? King is who he is, it's not just what he does. He's essentially rule. He rules with truth, he rules with compassion, he rules with justice, but we mustn't make the mistake to think that he doesn't rule, because he does. He can't be bullied, he can't be manipulated against his will, he can't be deceived, he can't be tricked. There's not a shred of weakness in God. There's not not in his power. There's no weakness in his character. There's no weakness in his knowledge. You see what I mean? His authority is complete. His sovereignty is without limitation and his majesty bears no rival. Listen to what Moses says. He said this to the people of Israel after they'd been rescued by God out of Egypt. They're about to enter the promised land and he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, 
and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Did you see the personal touch there? The almighty ruler of the universe that we've just spoken about is our God. There's, there's a relational connection. The real God is personal. And he says to us, you're with me. You're my people. I'm your God. And you can call me that. See, the irony here is that if you actually fear and reverence and honour this terrifyingly majestic God, it's those very aspects that you get a thrill about that strike awe in you, those very characteristics are the reasons that you have for hope. They're a source of comfort. Look at how Isaiah completes that passage that we looked at from Isaiah 40, from verse 27. So he's just called to mind the hugeness of God. Have you not, do you not know? Have you not heard? And then he says this, Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. And then he says that phrase again, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, a young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not be faint. It's, he's a God of unlimited power who empowers because that's what he's like the same power that sustains the searing furnaces of stars God uses to sustain those made in his image whom he loves the one who knows precisely what is happening on a remote asteroid in the depths of space knows precisely what you're battling with at home or at work or or school or uni And he knows about your cold. And he knows about that frustrating issue that you're having with your neighbour. He knows about that painful breakup. He knows about the mental illness that you're struggling with. He sees your bad dreams. He knows how tired you feel at the end of the day. He knows the little ticklish itch between your toes that's caused by your tinea. He knows all of that. Nothing, nothing is outside of his power or rule or beyond his knowledge and his conscious awareness. And he uses that power and that knowledge for our good and he uses it to give us the strength we need to keep living for him. That's our God, right? Our saviour God is the great God of the universe. Now, Can you imagine what it would be like to be in the presence of that God? Would you know that's what the disciples got to experience? 
the reality of who they were walking around with started to dawn on them in that reading when they were on, in the boat on the lake and they saw Jesus standing at the end of the boat in the middle of this tempest and with one word commands the wind and the waves to cease. He told creation what to do and it didn't. And what does the Bible tell us? It tells us the disciples were afraid during the storm, but they were terrified after Jesus stopped it. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? And what about the transfiguration? Now, we're actually going to look at this very passage in a few weeks' time when we resume our series in Mark's Gospel. But let me just read to you Mark chapter 9. Imagine you were there, seeing what the disciples saw. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured, metamorphosed before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, uh, it's good for us to be here. Um, Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and enveloped them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now, poor old Peter, the guy was gibbering um, because he was so scared that he had no idea what to say. You ever been seen something that's done that to you? Do you know, in the original word language, the word used here to describe their fear is one that refers to a kind of stomach-turning terror at realizing who they were standing in front of. That's what they saw when they saw Jesus. Oh my God! Again and again in the Gospels, as Jesus displays the power of God, the disciples and the crowds are filled with fear and awe as he shows his authority as a teacher and he shows his authority over sickness and demons and he creates food out of nothing for starving people. And he even proves his authority over death itself. People are awestruck. They're even afraid. The writer of Hebrews tells us this about Jesus. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You see, this is the stunning reality we've been reflecting upon at Christmas, just last week. That the God whose glory is incomparably greater than ours, actually stepped into his own creation, a fallen and broken creation that desperately needed saving because he loves the people that he's made. Think of the the shrinking down that takes place in God becoming a man, the limiting that God would do of himself because of his grace, that our majestic king would then end up dying on a cross to save us should actually leave us either stunned in humble silence 
or rejoicing in ceaseless praise. He already was worthy of our allegiance. Surely it is a thousand times over now. So then how should we respond to him? If if wisdom is responding the right way to God as he really is, then, then what is the right way to respond to the God who is so awesomely majestic? Who is the ruler of all things? Well, the first way to respond relates to our attitude. Now, I used to work um, for a Christian bookshop and I used to price the books and wrap pallets and things like that as a, a casual work. And I had a friend that I worked there with and, and he was giving me a lift home one day and we were talking in our conversation about what we loved about being a Christian. And he said, oh, one of the things that he loves the most is the fact that he can be really real and raw with God. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool, isn't it? And then he went on. He said, yeah, so when I feel like it, I just rant at God. I tell him to F off if I want to. You know, I love to be real with him like that. And, and I almost choked in the car when he said that. Let, let me explain to you why. You know, one of the amazing privileges of being a Christian is that we get to call the ruler of the universe Father. You know, and we can, we can pour out our hearts to him. We can even pour out our questions and our doubts and struggles. We can, we can cry out to him because we don't understand what he's doing or why things are happening. And we know that he's can lis- he will listen, we can ask him for things and we can know that he will, he will give us what is best. But we must always do that humbly recognising who he is and his glory. In Revelation, the elders cast down their crowns before the throne of God, rejoicing in his glory. They don't rock up to the throne, tell God to shove over because I've got a bleep bleep bone to pick with you. That presumption is breathtaking. You know, sometimes you hear people say things like, yeah, well, when I see God, I'm going to tell him exactly what I think about. No, they won't. They really, really won't. When the prophet Ezekiel witnessed the mere appearance of the likeness of the glory of God, he was fell down to the ground as though he was dead when he came before the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And this is a guy that gets a Bible book named after him. You know, it's astounding how presumptuous we can sometimes be with God, how we can forget ourselves before him, like he has to prove himself to us. Like he has to justify his actions. That he owes us some kind of explanation for the decisions that he makes or for the way that he's told us that we should live. In Romans, Paul says, But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what was formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? In Job, God appears in a whirlwind and and he says, 
Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. God lovingly but firmly reminds Job who is who. Now Job was an upright and righteous man, a great man. But even he overstepped the mark when he presumed to call on God to justify his actions to him. Look at how Job responds once he hears what God has to say. He says, I am unworthy, how can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. You know, um, somebody texted me earlier today and uh, after this morning's talk and, um, and they talked about this interview that a, an Irish um, journalist had with Bono from U2 and said, what, what, when you get before God um, and you finally meet him face to face, what are you going to say to him? And, and Bono said, you know, for the first time in my life, I think I'll say nothing. And I think that would be the right thing to do. Now, when you know that God is king, you listen to his word with humility. And you serve him with humility. And you speak to him in prayer with humility. And you place his desires before your desires in humility. Remember what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said to his Father, yet not my will but yours. What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. When you come before God or God in his word comes before you, you say, your will, my King. Well, if our attitude should be humility, then what should our actions be? obedience. If he is the majesty, you obey him. Philippians 2.12, therefore my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. You get that? Like, if if we recognise that it's the majestic God of the universe who is working in us so that we might will and act according to his good purpose, then you take that purpose to heart. Because, hey, it's God working in me. That's a big thing. That's pretty important. We're not going to take our salvation for granted. We're not going to sit loosely with obedience or question God about the rightness of his commands. We will obey him and we will take that obedience seriously with fear and trembling. The thought of disobeying God should cause us to tremble. I want you to imagine Joe Biden calling one of the office staff into the Oval Office and saying, 
look, could you please run this thing over to the vice president's office for me? And the person says, no way. Do it yourself. I'm checking my Instagram. Shut up. Got better things to do. Imagine what you'd notice about the office at that time. The clacking on the computer keys would stop. The people would go, call you later. The conversation around the place would cease and every eye would turn to that unbelievably arrogant twit that has clearly forgotten who exactly they're working for. Well, God's hardly left us in the dark about what we're to do, has he? I mean, he's told us how to conduct our relationships. He's told us about the way we're meant to speak to one another, how we should be treating the people less fortunate than ourselves, how we should act sexually, how we should be using our money and our talents for his glory, and heaps more. There's a Bible full of it. So where's the confusion? The awesomely majestic God has told you and me what we are to do. So we go do it. And we do it with an eager heart. As the psalmist does in Psalm 119. Look what he says here. I love the attitude that's coming out here. Do good to your servant according to your word, O Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment. For I believe in your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. You're good. And what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. You see that hunger to go, this is God's word to me. I'm I'm hungering to be able to do it. As Christians who know God, we should trust the goodness of his commands and in humility obey them. But what if you're not currently living with Jesus as your king? What if you are still resisting God's rule? Well, I hope today, I hope tonight has prompted you to reflect upon the sheer greatness of the God that currently you are resisting and that you will see the futility of that resistance. But far more than that, I hope your heart is actually stirred to want to get to know this awesomely majestic God for yourself. There could be no more worthy New Year's resolution than to do precisely that, to seek after God and get to know him. And even if you are somebody who who believes in him and follows him, that's not a bad New Year's resolution for you either. I want to get to know God better. I want to know him better at the end of this year than at the beginning of it. You see, in the end, God's majesty should lead us actually to faith, real and lasting faith, because it should remind us that God really does know what he's doing and he knows far better than we do. And so you and I can have amazing confidence in what he calls us to do. The biggest thing about knowing how awesomely majestic God is, is that we can know we can rely on him in absolutely every respect, because nothing is beyond him. And he works his incomparably great power for us who believe, because we are his people and he is our God. Let me pray.
Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for your magnificence. We give you glory. Um, and Father, we also humble ourselves because we know that we have often brought you down or treated you as less than who you are. Please forgive us for that. Please change us, captivate us by who you are. Give us a hunger to know you better, to love you more and to please you in all that we do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.